Hey there, this is Angel Donovan with Dating Skills Podcast, episode 71. We're taking another look at infidelity, cheating, and affairs today, this time from the perspective of how we recover from it. The fact is that for many people, at some time of your life, while in a monogamous relationship of some type, marriage or long-term relationship, the monogamous boundary is likely to be broken. That's what the statistics say. That's what the trend is. I believe infidelity is always a sign of something having gone wrong. Now, ideally, if you develop the right relationship skills, this won't come up for you. But most people don't or haven't. And we're not perfect also. And we make mistakes, especially the first time around. So learning how to recover from mistakes, learning skills to recover from a bad situation like infidelity can be very valuable. Perhaps infidelity has happened to you in the past. The question is, once it has happened, is it possible to recover the relationship? Has it damaged the value of the relationship permanently? Has it damaged our ability to get any satisfaction from this relationship in the future? And also our partner's satisfaction from the relationship? Or can the event of infidelity be used to make the relationship better over the longer term? Today's guest, Dr. Tammy Nelson, believes infidelity is becoming so common that we need to learn to accept and work with it rather than against it. She is a licensed psychotherapist who has worked for over 25 years with people to recover and strengthen their relationships after infidelity. And she's the author of the book on the subject, The New Monogamy, Redefining Your Relationship After Infidelity. She's also a board-certified sexologist, a certified sex therapist, a licensed professional counselor, and a certified imago relationship therapist. We're going to learn a bit more about what imago is because that's a key part of what she does. She is also a frequent speaker at conferences and has taught seminars and workshops around the world, including prestigious organizations like Harvard Medical School. As usual, to get the MP3 download of today's show, to get the interview transcript and all of the show notes, you can go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash DSP71. I'm Angel Donovan. And this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships. To become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned. Chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in change your life for the better step by step episode by episode hi tammy thank you very much for making your time available today hi thanks for having me we like to start uh, the interview by getting to know you a little bit better a bit more about your own life what you've been up to so what's, what's a quick overview of your background how did you get into this area of relationship and sex advice sure well i am a couples therapist so i'm also a board certified sexologist and a certified sex therapist and i started off being a psychotherapist i've been a psychotherapist for several decades And my training as a couples therapist was interesting because even in my graduate degrees and all my programs and my postgraduate degrees, I have a lot of letters after my name. It's a little compulsive, actually. They never talked about sex. And I I just found that fascinating that you could be trained as a couples therapist to work with couples, um, partnered couples, married couples, gay, straight. It didn't matter. They never talked about sex. And I found that actually kind of insulting. 
And what I realized was that a lot of the theoretical models were all geared towards this idea that if you work on the relationship, the sex will fix itself. And I really disagreed with that. I actually believe that it works the opposite way, that if you work on people's sex life, the relationship will fix itself. Right. So when was this? Well, that was, I've been training since the 80s. So that was in the 90s. So in the late 90s, I did my graduate work. And then in the early 2000s, I got my PhD in sexology. And the reason I did that is to really integrate my work with couples therapy and sexuality to really teach people and learn and work with people in a way to talk about sex, to change everything in their relationship. And that it's communicating about their sex life and their erotic fantasies and all the things that make people feel passionate and alive will also make them feel in love and make them feel juiced up and make them feel happy and make them stay together and make them have long-term committed partnerships or at least make them have happy relationships while they're in them. Um, what I found was that it wasn't so much about sexual function. You know, it wasn't about giving people a pill or changing the dysfunction in their relationship. It was really about how to create uh, sexual relationships that work. That's sort of how I got a little bit obsessed with writing books and articles and ebooks and everything else that I do now about sexuality. Great. And so did the sexology course itself cover that or did that cover more the, how would you say, technical aspects of sex? And then you built on that just to be interested to know what kind of courses were out at that time. Yeah, that's such a good question because when I was looking for a PhD program, a lot of the programs had closed and the ones that were left were all research-based and driven primarily by the pharmacological companies. So they were all looking for ways to develop what we call the pink Viagra, the Viagra to give women to increase desire and arousal, which, by the way, they'll never figure out. So it was very hard to find a program that was really geared for relational issues. And the program that I went to did talk about couples therapy, but I also learned a lot about how to work with sexual function, how to work with anatomical issues, which I didn't know about. That was not my background, medicine and anatomy. So I feel like I got a really good medical background as well. And then I was able to take my counseling background and my training in couples therapy. I'm trained in what's called imago therapy. It's a type of relationship therapy and integrate those two things in my book. Right, right. So imago therapy is a way of communicating, basically, so you don't trigger each other. So you can have real conversations without it turning into fights all the time. I'm summarizing in modern urban language there. <laughs> It's a great way that you put it. It's a way of having dialogues with each other where you actually feel heard and you can validate each other's feelings and create some empathy. And I think it's a great way to create a structure to actually talk about sex. Yeah, let's talk a bit about that a bit later in the interview, because I think that's something that we don't often talk about. And it, these little tools are very useful in terms of being able to communicate about things, because it's true, people get defensive quite easily in, in these kind of situations, too. So just to finish off with the background part, where are you at in life? Like, how old are you? Uh, are you married? Or what is your personal background to this? I am older than you would think, but I'm still very young at heart. I'm married. I have four kids, two from my husband's first marriage and two from my first marriage. And this is our second marriage. We also have a really active and 
integrated sex life that we believe that we use as sort of the training ground for my books and my lectures. So we believe that we can't lecture people on things that don't work. <laughs> right, right, right. Of course. So you practice what you preach, basically. Yeah. So it was a great thing. I know in your books, you talk about monogamy, the continuum between monogamy and open, completely closed and open from emotional sexual standpoints. Are you happy to say where you've designed your relationship to be? Yeah, there's a whole continuum and a range of monogamous relationships. And I think we would describe ourselves as suburban monogamy. Suburban monogamy means that you have a very monogamous relationship, but maybe with some open sexual behaviors. And we can talk about that when we talk about this sort of continuum of monogamy, what it means. I think people define monogamy in so many different ways. We're not polyamorous. We don't have outside sexual partners that are separate from our relationship. And that is a whole new phenomenon with other people. But I think a lot of people have monogamous relationships on the surface. And then when you find out what they do on the weekends, you might not think that that's monogamy. Although I think it gets defined in a myriad of ways. And it's not really up to me to define other people's monogamy. So this is a fascinating topic because as you say, it's a continuum. And like the more experience you have or the more you've learned about it, you see a lot more detail in that continuum. Lots of little steps rather than or we're told is basically that there's kind of two versions or maybe three versions if you consider everyone who's having an affair is kind of in the middle or something. This is a topic we've brought up quite a few times in it from different perspectives. And I think today we're going to look at it from yet another perspective on have to actually think about how you define your relationship rather than just following what you thought was you were supposed to do without really thinking about it. So the topic we're looking at where you've written your book and the new monogamy is based around an event, which is that there's been some kind of a fair event, which has triggered a crisis, which has triggered the need to start rethinking the relationship and moving on from there. And one point in the book, you say that going forward in the future, you think no one's going to be able to have the kind of standard monogamy relationships we've been used to previously. And we are gonna have to think about this stuff a lot more. Potentially, we're going to have to evolve the way we have marriages and these kind of very long term serious relationships. Could you talk a little bit about how you see things changing? Yes, I'm happy to. I think this is the first time in history you can cheat on your partner lying in bed next to them. <laughs> we have a whole new definition of monogamy. I mean, you get married and you don't say, I promise to love, honor, and uh, tell you about all my Facebook friends and let you know when I'm tweeting too much with one person over another. And, you know, it's a whole different definition of marriage of committed partnership for over two decades now we've still had the same amount of divorce in our culture we're still hovering at around 50 percent but so many things have changed we're getting married at 28 instead of 18 we're defining monogamy in a whole bunch of different ways people know what polyamory means poly means many amory means love many love so we have all this whole different language around marriage i mean we've never had the variety of possibilities that we have now. And it's different than swinging in the 70s or having an open marriage. George and Nina O'Neill wrote this book, Open Marriage in the 70s. I think today our focus on being parents and taking a village to raise our children, there's a lot of things that are similar, but things that will definitely change the way relationships look going forward out of necessity. Like I said, the technical piece of our lives, the sort of multi-attentive way we look at life has changed. The way that we have this extended adolescence 
So you don't wait until marriage to have sex anymore because you're 28 instead of 18. So that's changed marriage. There were a lot of different ways to experience variety and excitement without breaking your monogamy bond. Like pornography has never been as accessible as it is now. And perhaps people are using that to stay monogamous. It's just a whole different twist on internet monogamy that we've never had before. So we can define it in in ways we've never had to define it before. So if that's the case, if there's so many different kinds of relationships, we have to talk about it with your partner because there's this implicit assumption that your kind of monogamy is the same kind as mine. And I can tell you, I know you're in Spain right now. I'm on the East Coast of the U.S. I can tell you that I've traveled all around the world talking about this stuff and working with couples and working with other therapists. And I can tell you, even though there's all different beliefs about monogamy and relationships and fidelity and sex. Everywhere I've ever gone, the one common denominator is that people talk about sex the least with the person they're actually having sex with. And that's what I think is the difference. That's what we have to change going forward. The least that they're having actual sex with. They talk the least about sex to the person they're actually having sex with. That's crazy. If I think about it yeah, as a standard, that's definitely that's definitely the opposite of what we try to put out on this program. <laughs> exactly. Um, but if I think about it, the mainstream, that's a very true insight you have there, unfortunately. And it's been like that for a long time. Hopefully it's changing a little bit. It is getting more open. You can just see by the media, they're more open about talking about sex. So hopefully some of that's getting picked up in relationships a bit naturally. The work that you're doing, and I think talking about sex in the media or talking about sex in general is different than talking to someone that you actually are having sex with and having the skills to be able to communicate what you want, what you need, what you desire is a whole nother thing. The stuff that you're doing, the stuff that I'm doing, the stuff that's beginning now, I think is crucial in changing the way that we do relationships. And it decreases the risk for real hurt and betrayal because explicit monogamy breaches start long before somebody actually hurts each other's feelings. There's an implicit problem that happens long before someone cheats on each other. Right. In your definition, there's always a reason why the affair comes out. Basically, you're saying that someone's needs aren't getting fed, aren't getting met in the relationship. And that eventually they have to go outside of the relationship. Is that it in basic terms? Well, I think it's not so much their needs aren't getting met, because that kind of implies that the person being cheated on is at fault. So it kind of blames the quote unquote victim. And it's more that something's got to give. If somebody is creating a trauma or shaking up the relationship in that way, it's because something was going on in the relationship that needed shaking up. It doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. I think there's different types because you talk about the exit and there's certainly some people who use an affair as a way to get out of relationships, avoiding the conflict of having to tell someone. It's a funny way to do it, but I think this is very true. You cause this crisis event through having an affair and the partner discovering it and then they basically finish with you. They do the job for you instead of you having to do it. Exactly. So that's one thing. So it seems like a whole bunch of ways that the affairs can come up. I was wondering what you thought, because like a lot of it seems to be, do you think 100% are due to the relationship and, and issues that can be fixed in the relationship? Or do you think that some people are basically in a fair mode? They're either born that way or they've learned to be that way. And it's just something that kind of naturally do. And they find it difficult to change that behavior or change that style, even when they've decided to 
get married or have a long-term relationship at one point, but a couple of years or three years into it, they decide, uh, I don't know, I just feel like having affairs or I just like feeling like I have to see other people. Mm -hmm. It's a great question because I think some people have affairs for what I call uh, can openers. It's a way to get out of the relationship and to avoid having to open their mouths and say, I want out. And sometimes you don't even know. It's an unconscious thing. Your body tells you before your head even knows. And that's a can opener. That means the relationship's over. Other people, when someone says, I'm just not built for monogamy or I'm just not monogamous, or they say monogamy is just not natural for people, I I always get this image of us being born like apes. When people say, well, monogamy is not natural for humans, um, we're not born knowing how to use a fork either or pee in the house for that matter. You know, you have to learn these things. And so I think of monogamy sort of the same way. Maybe we're not genetically predisposed to automatically know how to be monogamous, but we learn. It's a choice. It's a choice that you make. It's a practice. It's like yoga or meditation. Yeah. And it's something, if you're going to decide, it should be a rational choice that you've decided that it's going to be a healthier lifestyle for you. It's going to be something that's going to be good for you. Because some people, obviously, they don't think about this very much, but maybe it's not a good type of relationship for them. For instance, I can view people who tend to be more dopamine driven. So by excitement, many types of monogamy might just not fit their biology. They might always need a bit more excitement and it could be difficult to get that type of excitement in a monogamy unless the other partners can add a lot of adventure despite being in a monogamy. Have you come across these kind of biological cases like that? Well, I think people use that as an excuse as well. I think you can be a high adventure type person who can create a really exciting sex life. Those are people that if you want to create a really adventurous time, you can do that in a monogamous relationship or not. It has nothing to do with monogamy. It has to do with your imagination. Some people are just um, developmentally delayed sexually. And so they're sort of still in this adolescent mode where even though they say they want to be committed in a partnership, they're still acting out this unfinished business from their adolescence. This idea of being a sex addict, I don't really buy into. I think this sort of excuse for being an uncontrollable behavior. If you have a compulsion to repeat a behavior, I certainly treat people who are obsessed and can't control themselves. And so they repeat something over and over, even after it's hurt them or other people. But the idea of being born to have repetitive infidelity, they just can't be in a relationship. That's also means that you're still in that phase of your life where you can't decide. And you need perpetual acting out experiences. Or you need to at least tell your partner, I'm not ready for a commitment. And so there's a lot of different types of affairs. And you're absolutely right. No affairs fit into a category. There's no three reasons that women cheat or three reasons that men cheat. I think there's many different kinds of affairs as there are people. Right, right. Yeah, it's very complicated. And it's about relationships at the end of the day. Do you find it's different between women and men, the types of reasons they tend to have affairs? Anthropologists and sociologists get asked this all the time, and they've done some research on why men cheat and why women cheat. And the research is hard to get because infidelity is based on dishonesty. And so a lot of people lie to the researchers. But women have a tendency to downplay, I know it's funny, women have a tendency to downplay their affairs and men have a tendency to brag. And that's because just historically women have suffered 
much harsher penalties for infidelity than men. And there's still like three or four countries where you can get burned alive, stoned to death, lose your head, ostracized. Up until recently, you could lose your children and in a divorce, not get custody, not get alimony. So it's difficult for women many times, even in our progressive country now, because we get labeled. And so women will sometimes downplay it, but men will over brag about their prowess and their infidelity. So there's a piece of it that has to do with getting your emotional needs met that for many women, they think will have affairs to get their emotional needs met. But statistically, it's been shown in the research that we do have that men will cheat on their committed partners when they feel like they're not being appreciated. Right. And I'd say the opposite. If uh, a woman is sexually frustrated, I think she doesn't like to talk. Like you say, there's biases in the studies because they don't like to talk about it. But I think women can get pretty frustrated sexually as well if they don't have a good sex life and same reason. So I'm not sure how different it is between the men. I know stereotypically, as you're saying, like the women are supposed to be more emotionally driven and the guys more sex driven. But I think it's closer, a lot closer than we stereotypically think. I absolutely agree with you. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's very insightful, actually. And I think that um, a lot of people will have affairs to stay in their marriage. So they may be getting a lot of their needs met or even most of their needs met, but they find a parallel relationship because it gives them that sexuality that they need or it gives them that appreciation or it gives them someone that looks up to them or fills the need for sensuality or gives them that kinky dopamine rush that you were talking about or something that, but they get everything else that they need so they don't want to give up their marriage. And it allows them to stay with the partner that they have. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to touch on is, I think I brought this up in previous podcasts, is that I've known quite a few guys that basically it's a bit of the age thing that you were talking about, that people tend to get married or they tend to get into longer term relationships later. So we have a larger adolescence or period when we're experimenting like through to 28 or even 30s, even 40s for some people. Like with everything in life, we get set in our ways. And if you've been living this single basically kind of single dating, polyamorous, more casual dating lifestyle for 30 years, it might be a little bit hard to change just on a dime and start going, okay, now I'm going to be completely monogamous and I'm going to forget all of these behaviors that have been programmed into my neural synapses over time and they're pretty deep grooves. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's very true. And particularly for things like pornography, I always get couples that are in my office and she says, you know, he's been cheating on me. I walked in on him masturbating to pornography. He must be a sex addict. And he looks at her and says, are you kidding? I've been doing this since I was 11. <laughs> right, right. Most guys talk about that stuff. A lot of women would call that cheating. Right. Because to her, it feels like you're having a sexual relationship with someone that's not me. And not to be facetious, but frankly, the way that she looks at it from her perspective is when we got married or committed in a partnership, you basically lost the right to touch that penis because now that's mine. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I don't feel like touching it tonight. So therefore, no one's going to touch it. That's crazy. And, yeah. <laughs> and from his perspective, this is something that's totally private and separate and disconnected from our relationship or compartmentalized, I should say, and has nothing to do with you, absolutely nothing. And from her perspective, you don't understand. Everything has something to do with me. If it has to do with sex and your penis, it has to do with me. (laughs) And therefore, she doesn't understand that it could be compartmentalized and really not take away or siphon off desire from their relationship. Now, for many men, it does siphon off desire from the relationship, and then it is a problem. Right, right, of course. It's also interesting to just talk about masturbation on its own. 
is it the porn plus masturbation or is it masturbation on its own also? Because I think a lot of girls, if I'm talking about masturbation with them, I don't think that has really shocked many girls. In fact, a lot of girls these days probably expect you to masturbate. Maybe not when you're in the relationship with each other a lot, but I'd say most girls expect that. And I kind of expect it of the girls, although some of them always deny it. But <laughs> do you see the porn as a the more the focus or is it also about masturbation? I think that in our society, it's the masturbation that's the primary problem and the porn is secondary. But it depends on if the porn is just for masturbatory imagery or if the porn because they have a fetish or a paraphilia that they can't share with their partner. Or the third reason is what I call zip code porn, that they're actually searching to meet someone else online, like on a webcam or... Oh, right. What's that called? Zip code? Uh, That's what I call zip code. Okay. Why zip code? Because the girls in a webcam on the same location? Because you can type in your zip code and find someone in your area to actually meet in real time. Oh, they meet in person. Yeah. So at first you might send pictures of each other or you might chat online or you might have a webcam, mutual masturbation, but eventually the idea is to meet in person. So things like Adult Friend Finder or those kind of websites, Ashley Madison, where you meet other people who are married as well in order to just have a sex relationship. Right, right. So that's what you're talking about. That's zip code. Yes, it was zip code porn. That's what I called. Okay, zip code porn. Cool. <laughs> When you talk about the whole affair thing, you break it into three separate parts. You have the emotional, the sexual, and the dishonesty. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of each? When we're talking about someone having an affair, it is important to define what you actually mean. Because when couples come into my office or they come in for an intensive, so I see them for a day or two because they're really in a crisis and they need sort of an intervention to decide how we're going to fix this going forward if they want to stay together. To really define which is the part for you that's the deal breaker or that's making you crazy or that you're having the hardest time with. Because there's the outside relationship and that's the emotional piece. Is it someone that you paid for sex or is it someone that you have an emotional connection with at work that you see every day more than you spend time with me? What's the emotional piece? Is it someone that you've been complaining about our marriage to online for a year? Where are you wired into this person? Because that emotional connection might be more painful than even the sex that you're having with them. And then the second piece is the sexual connection. Are you doing this mutual masturbation thing online or have you been having sex with a man? And now I have to figure out, wait, are you gay or are you just having sex with a man? Or does that mean I'll never satisfy you? There's a lot of trauma that goes on about that and confusion. What kind of sexual relationship are you having? Are you having sex with them in a different way than you are with me? And can we ever have sex again? All those questions that come up. And then there's the dishonesty piece. And there's a whole continuum there too, because there's a big difference between discovery and disclosure. So did I find it on your laptop? And did you deny it when I found that email that said that you love that other person? Or did you come to me and say, I really messed up. I had this one night stand with this person when I was at a conference and we really need to work on our relationship. So there's this whole piece around dishonesty and how well you recover from an affair depending on what's the part that really triggers you. And maybe you can get over all of it, but you can't get over the fact that they lied to you when you looked in their face. And the last part really about that is there's a big difference between not telling your partner because you're trying to save their feelings and you really don't think it's necessary to tell them, you know, seven years ago, I made out with someone in a bar. That's much different than when they look you in the eye and ask you, did you make out with that person? And you say no. 
There's a big difference between lying directly and just avoiding the conflict. Right, lying by omission. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. In the past, sometimes that's been a conflict for me. I'm very transparent, but sometimes if you don't want to hurt the girl unnecessarily, there's sometimes you're like, well, there's no point in saying anything about this. We're going to break up potentially anyway or whatever. Why would I make it worse by saying that this was involved as well? There's a bit of a kind of ethical values dilemma or something. I guess everyone should figure that out for themselves, what they feel most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Right. These are the kind of things that I think should be negotiated when you first get into a relationship. What should honesty do we want? Do we you come home and tell your partner every time you see someone hot on the street and get turned on? I mean, some people have that kind of relationship where if you've been flirting with someone, you should come home and tell me. That's a slippery slope. For other people, are like, are you kidding? If I saw someone hot in the grocery store every day, I'd be coming home all the time and having this conversation. So that's something that you negotiate in a relationship and you talk about it. You have that kind of transparency about how much transparency is healthy for us. Right. For most people, that's unnatural. And that's kind of the problem. And that's probably why your book is about affairs. It's a good way to get into it because you're forced into that situation and to start talking more openly. But my guess is most people, I think I know that most people either they just feel it's unnecessary, they feel awkward about it, and they're not used to this type of communication, open communication about all of these issues. And it seems like a lot of work up front when maybe they things are okay. I think there's always that as well. They're like, well, we're okay. You know, especially when you first start a relationship, we don't need to talk about this until we've had negative experiences where it kind of blew up because we didn't have that. And then we have to kind of learn from our mistakes. Mm-hmm. And frankly, if you're going to have a new kind of relationship where you might possibly want to have a little bit more fluid or flexible monogamy, you have to have those conversations up front so that you can have the harder conversations later on. Yep, and they'll be easier. Yeah, <laughs> much easier. Much easier, yeah. So it's about a new way of approaching it. I'm just not sure how people first get into it. I think by educating people about the fact that it's a continuum between monogamy and polygamy, and it's whatever you've learned socially or culturally isn't necessarily exactly what's going to be a best fit for you. That encourages a conversation in your head, and then you're going to be encouraged to have that conversation with people when you first start with them. Instead of, I think the biggest problem is ignorance or people just not even thinking about it. Well, I think the biggest problem, yes, is ignorance, but I think it's also conflict avoidance. And it's assuming that your partner wants the same thing that you do. I also think it's developmental. Maybe you don't have these big conversations in the beginning, but if you're going to be in a long-term relationship with someone, you have to keep renewing this conversation. I mean, we renew our license every couple of years. Why wouldn't you renew your monogamy agreement with your partner? It's kind of silly not to have a conversation about, okay, what's changed? Now we're having kids, what's changed? Now the kids are older, what's changed? Now the kids are out of the house, what's changed? Now it's kind of like developmentally checking in with your partner, what kind of sex do we want now? Do we want to go to a sex club and check that out and check out other people? Do we want to look at porn together? Do we want to try something different? These are conversations that happen that keep your sex life and your passionate connection alive or you start having them with someone else. That's when problems start. There is that kind of laziness and going on autopilot mode, which I think when you've got a busy life, work, pressures and other stuff going on, perhaps more when they're married because they have that structure that they think that, you know, they've been put in this structure that's not supposed to be broken. So maybe it makes them a bit too comfortable and relying too much on that structure rather than realizing that it's a relationship that can break just like any other relationship at any time. And so I have a couple suggestions. One is I see couples that come in for two different reasons, basically. One is neglect. 
There's really two parts of a relationship. There's companionship and then there's eroticism. So your companionship is the day-to-day management of the business of your relationship. It's where do we get the pizza? Who walks the dog? What do you want to watch on TV? Who brings the kids to the bus stop if you have kids? That's the day-to-day companionship roommates of your relationship. You might be great roommates, but if you don't work on the erotic piece of your relationship, you're going to feel like you're just roommates. And you can't just assume that if you're good roommates and you don't fight and there's no conflict, that the erotic piece will fall into place because you might love each other, but if you don't have the erotic piece, you're not going to feel like you're in love with each other because the erotic piece is the passion. It's the aliveness. It's the, I love each other piece that made you get together in the first place. And you probably could pick a better roommate. That's not why you got together. You got together for the erotic piece, the in love piece. The other reason that people come to me is for some kind of a trauma to that in love piece, like a betrayal, like affairs or illness or something, something breaks in there. So you could go on in your relationship. If you've been neglecting that erotic piece, you're going to come in and sit down in my office and say, I love my partner, but I'm just not in love with them. Or you're going to come in and say, oh my God, one of us really screwed this up. And now we're not sure if we can stay together. Okay. And is that exactly the same for men and women? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Gay, straight, Okay, that's even more interesting, yeah. Pods. (laughs) Right, so everyone, basically everyone. Yeah, and so I have one intervention. I have a couple things. So I'm going to leave people on your podcast with a couple things they can do to change their relationships so they don't get into the neglect and hopefully avoid the trauma. So the first thing, and you can challenge me on this, and I hope you will, is that everyone should have a sex date once a week. And I don't mean just, okay, we go out to dinner and eat rich food and drink wine because you're not going to have sex when you come home. You'll be tired. Nobody does that. Everyone comes home and they're tired. You have to carve out an erotic date once a week. and It has to be the same time every week, but it has to be a really sacred space. So you come home every week, nine o'clock, Friday night, let's just say that's on your calendar, and you do it no matter what. It doesn't matter if you're mad, if you hate each other, if there's something better on TV, if you're tired, if you're sick, if the kids are up. Nine o'clock has to be sacred every Friday night, and you have to turn off the TV, and you have to light the candles and change the sheets and turn on the music and take showers. And I don't care if you have intercourse, but you have to do something erotic and push the edge every Friday night at nine o'clock. And there's several reasons for that. People say, well, it's not spontaneous. Well, you can be as spontaneous as you want, but you have to plan it. If you're married or you're in a long-term relationship, you're not going to come home and sweep the dishes off the kitchen table and say, take me now. You're just not. You're tired, but you have to walk the dog. Other things are going on. You need anticipatory eroticism, especially women. Women have to feel aroused before they feel desire. For men, desire comes before arousal. For women, they have to feel aroused before they feel desire. And so anticipatory arousal means that on Wednesday or Thursday, you're telling them, I can't wait to see you naked on Friday night. On Friday morning, you're saying, I'm so hot for you, thinking about Friday night. And after a few weeks, what happens, a new neurological pathway is carved in your brain And even if you're mad at your partner, you're still thinking, oh, I should shave my legs. Oh, maybe I'll buy a new lingerie. You know, stuff starts to get reinforced. If you have an orgasm Friday nights at nine o'clock, that's the highest behavioral reinforcer the body can experience. Pleasure is the thing that gets reinforced. And now you have this neurological pathway. You're going to want to show up at nine o'clock whether you feel like it or not. You said that you should be pushing the edge each time, which I think people find it difficult or 
After several years, they're like, okay, how do we push the edge now? Have you got any suggestions on the approach to continually kind of pushing the edge and what kind of things work? Yes. Well, that would be my second suggestion. So when you try to change your sex life, you don't say, I don't like it when you do this, or I hate it when we do that, or I'm so bored with this, or we never do that. Because then people get frustrated, defensive, and depressed. We don't point out what's not working. You don't say, I hate it when you go to the left. You say, I love it when you go to the right. The key and the secret keys to the kingdom about changing your sex life are always using appreciation. And so the beginning of that conversation and the way you start doing more and more edgy things and adding adventure to your sex life is you start out by talking about what is working or what has worked in the past, what you want more of, and then you talk about what you'd like to try. So the way this sounds, and your listeners can write this down, they'll also at the end, I'll give you my uh, website and my email so they can contact me and I'll send them this in a worksheet form or they can contact you and you can get it for them. Great. Yeah, we'll also put the links on the page. Okay, perfect. So it would sound like one thing I appreciate about you is... And then one thing I appreciate about you sexually, and that's really important because it opens the frontal lobe for people to hear what comes next. And the next part is one thing we already do that I would like more of, and that might be something you did 10 years ago when we took a shower together. I want more of that. Or when we use that massage oil, I want more of that. Or I would really like to have sex standing up again. I want more of that. So you're working on something that's already doing it for you. You're just expanding on it. And that's really, really important because whatever you're doing that's right, and I'm sure there's something that's working for you, you're expanding it and doing more of it. And whenever you do more of what already works, you get more of it. Whatever you appreciate, you always get more of that. And then you say, and something I'd like to try. And be careful about sharing that fantasy, letting your partner know there's a difference between taking something into action and just sharing something that you're curious about because you think it's hot to talk about. So you might say, one thing I'd really like to try is maybe having a threesome, but I'm not ready to take that into action, but I think it's hot. Or you could say, one thing I'd like to try is tying you up to the bed. I'd really like to try that. I really would like to take that into action. So there's a difference, but basically sharing something that's already working that you want to do more of, and then something you want to try. So I noticed that you always say, I, so you're always coming from yourself uh, to the other person. What would you say about saying to the other person, what do you think of this? What do you think of anal sex, for example? Um, Well, see, I would do the appreciation and then I would switch and have the other person share theirs. And then once both of you have shared, then you can talk about how you feel about the other person's fantasies. Because once you start saying, what do you think about this? Then the other person has time and space to go into their reactivity. If you're just holding the space to hear the other person's fantasy, you don't have to react. You don't have to say, yes, no, I don't want to. That's gross. I'll never do that. Okay, let's go. Let's go to the hardware store. Because one of people's biggest fears is not so much that their partner will say, ew, that's gross. But their partner will say, okay, let's go. Let's go call the neighbor right now and tell her to come over. Sometimes we just need some space to be heard and to let that sort of sink in a little bit and to not have our partner react. We don't want to react. We just want to say it and have that like be a little holding space before we do anything. And just let the energy be in the room. Just talking about your fantasies can be really hot. And all that erotic energy 
now is in that erotic space in between you, you're not talking about taking the dog out. You're not talking about the kids. You're just in that erotic space between you. And that's what you want is you want to bring all that erotic energy there. And it's great. Maybe you don't do any of it, but now you're just hot for each other because you're talking about it. Right. And you've got more topics to talk about in the future as well as you expand these conversations. Yeah. Would you say it's very important to be open to your partner's ideas? Obviously, you shouldn't be judgmental, as you've already you know, explained. But is it important to be open to trying things out for the first time? Maybe you'll decide afterwards, like, oh, I don't feel comfortable with this. I'd prefer we did other stuff in future. But do you think it's always important to try it at least once or, you know, have that kind of open mindset? Well, I mean, if your partner says, you know, I'd really like to drive a nail through your penis. Right. That's extreme there. (laughs) I don't think you need to be open to everything. What I do think is that you should develop a, um, what I call sexual empathy. So that means it makes sense to me that that would turn you on. So how can you get to the place where it makes sense to you that there's a turn on there for your partner? So I'll give you an example. I have one couple who he really wanted to get a swing to hang from the ceiling where he would sit in the swing. And she said, there's no way in hell I'm getting a sex swing. It's going to ruin our ceiling. It doesn't turn me on. I don't understand it. I can't get any empathy for that. And so I asked him to tell her more about what's hot about that for you. And he said, to be honest, you know, I've spent my whole marriage with you worried that I'm going to crush you. He was a really big guy. And he said, you know, it always hurts my knees and my elbows and my shoulders. And the thought that I could be suspended and not have to worry about crushing you and it wouldn't hurt my knees. And she started crying. And she was like, oh, my God, now I get it. It makes total sense that that would be hot for you to not have to worry that it would crush me, to not have to worry about being in pain. And she said, I totally get that that would turn you on. She said, I still don't want the swing. But I could have sex with you in the pool and we could be weightless. And that's what they do now. And they're totally into it. So to get to that place of empathy, if you don't understand what's hot about it for your partner, then you don't really have any other options except to keep asking them, tell me more about what turns you on about that. Yeah. Coming straight out of the gate and asking them lots of questions doesn't really open them up to talking about things very easily. So going back to just how you approached it, you said like, you know, talk about your own feelings first. Some of the things and I think they're leading the way enables the other person to start sharing more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. So I wanted to touch on the Imago process because I think it's a great way to get out of jail, like get out of trouble sometimes when, when, you know, there's there's arguments and there's conflict and there's things or just misunderstandings and things going on, whether it's in the bedroom or um, in big conflicts like uh, affairs and other things that, you know, everyone comes across. So how how does the Imago process work? Imago therapy is based on a theory in a book written by Harville Hendricks called Getting the Love You Want. And it's really recognizing that there's no coincidence that you're with the person you're with and that we choose someone who really will finish off our childhood wounds, basically. Basically, you choose someone who you really need in your life to learn some really important stuff about yourself. So the idea is... When you have a conversation with someone that you're in conflict with, they're really teaching you something about yourself. But it's really hard to hear when you're mad at someone. It's all about them. You know, a lot of couples come into my office and they just say, well, if you just fix them, then we'll be fine. (laughs) And Imago is a way to have a dialogue with your partner similar to the one I just described. So because Imago never really talked about sex, I wrote getting the sex you want so that you could use Imago to talk about your sex life and change your sex life. So that dialogue that I just described, the way you would do it in the Mago dialogue would be to say, one thing I really appreciate about you, maybe I'd say, you know, you're a great interviewer. 
And so you would say back to me just exactly what I said to you. You'd say, so one thing you really appreciate about me is that I'm a great interviewer. So that's just called mirroring. And it's just a way of actively listening to each other. What you wouldn't do is say, oh, so you really appreciate that I showed up. You were late and I showed up, you know, (laughs) you know, try not to twist things around. Like we normally don't really listen to what our partner says when it's halfway out of their mouth. We already have our retort and we already, we're already defending ourselves. (laughs) So it's just a way of sort of slowing down the process and then being able to say to our partner, it makes perfect sense that you would think that because I know that you really appreciate a good interview or I know you've done so many of these and it must be really a relief for you to finally have someone that can do it well or whatever, you know, validate each other's feelings. And the reason that's important is because most of us really need to know that our partner's really hearing us and they're really present and they're really getting it. And so that's just a very small piece of Imago, but it's part of that process that we use in therapy. Yeah, that's great. Great. Thank you very much for that overview. A couple of things we always round off with. First of all, who besides yourself would you recommend for high quality advice in this area? If you're a gay man or you think that you're in a relationship with someone who's having sex with men, but you're not sure if they're gay, Joe Court, who's in Detroit, um, I think is an expert in that. So I always try to refer people to people who are specialists sort of in a niche area. Could that be bisexuals as well? Exactly. So I think he's very good. And then if you want to look into becoming a sex therapist, you can go on the ASECT website. So it's A-A-S-E-C-T, which is American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. You can find out more. I provide CEs and supervision for them. So you can always contact me directly to ask me more about how to do that. Or you can go on my website. Just out of interest, has that been growing, that organization? Yes, it's growing rapidly. I think more and more people are interested in in sex therapy and sex education and being a coach. And they also have sexological body workers, which I don't know too much about, but people that are um, massage therapists and help people really sort of get in touch with their bodies and how it works. There's also sexual surrogacy or something where someone will have sex with you to help you redevelop your sexual skills. Yeah, sexual surrogates. A surrogate is different than a, a prostitute. I mean, surrogates are legal and they will have a certain amount of sessions with you, particularly if you're having a dysfunction or if you're handicapped. Or So those all help out there, basically. The final question is that everyone, we ask everyone this question, ever since the first episode, I think it was, what would be your top three recommendations to help men get better results with their women partners as fast as possible? If we're thinking of the highest impact things. Mirror back what they say so you know they know that you're listening to them. Empathize and validate them. And be really conscious. So be a man who is consciously working on himself. I think women have a little higher standards today. <laughs> and <laughs> they're more attracted to men who are conscious and awake than ever right. before. I think everyone's standards are growing up and it's making things difficult. <laughs> It should even out eventually. If everyone's standards are higher, then they should all meet each other. (laughs) Well, it depends if our standards are above our own standards, if you know what I mean. (laughs) If you look at the online dating scene, I kind of get that impression when if you look at the match.com profiles and things like this, it seems like I've done something at dating. A lot of people are quite frustrated with that process. And I sometimes think it's a kind of a matter of standards or any interesting comments, feedback on that (laughs) commentary there? (laughs) Well, I'm 
met my husband on Match.com, and that was a while ago, and I think it's changed dramatically. But I do think that it's an important measure because if you meet someone in a bar and you're sexually attracted to them, it's too late. It doesn't matter if they've been in prison seven times or you know they have three wives or three husbands. Once you're sexually attracted to someone, you have no meter of discrimination. So I think meeting online will always be a better way because you can put your list in first and discriminate. And then if you meet and you're not attracted, you have a friend for life. I still have three guys that I'm friends with that I met before him, but there was no sexual chemistry. But then if you meet someone, they have everything on your list and you're hot for each other, then you have everything. I think that's a great point. And a lot of the advice out there says that you should hook up pretty quickly if you want something to to have chemistry. But my more recent experience is if you want a good longer term relationship, it's good to just be friends for a while and actually kind of force the issue. And like you said, online dating tends to do that a bit more naturally because you've got that online chat, as long as it's not on Tinder, (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of the opposite these days. But you can actually do it in offline. Like if, if you meet someone, you can slow down the process. It's something I was experimenting with over the past years. And like I'd literally go on loads of dates over a couple of months and I just wouldn't take it anywhere because I just wanted to see where the friendship would go first. So there's that option for people if, if they haven't thought of that as well. Well, I wish you good luck. Thank you very much for your time today, Tammy. It's been a great talk. I enjoyed it very much. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. And people, if they want more information, they can go to www.drtammynelson.com. It's dr. T-A-M-M-Y-N-E-L-S-O-N.com. And you can email me through my website, and I'm happy to send you any of the information that I mentioned, including the handouts. Um, But it's Tammy at DrTammyNelson.com to contact me directly. But thank you so much. I really appreciate it today. Yeah. Excellent. Are you using Twitter or anything like that? Yes. And you can find me through Dr. Tammy Nelson on Twitter and also on Facebook. There's a Getting the Sex You Want page. And I have all those other things, Pinterest and all that other stuff. I have no idea what they are, but you can find me on all of them. But the main one sounds like Twitter and Facebook. Yes. Yes. All right. Great. Yeah. Thanks. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life, step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at DatingSkillsReview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.